morning. This is now the second time in 32 years that I've been invited to preach here in this distinguished community. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here. Um, so when Bill and I were, uh, Bill Veenster and I were invited to uh, help this coming year and to provide some sort of a cohesive theme, you know, it's sort of difficult when you have all these, the two of us and other guest pastors. And so we chose this theme um, on the parables of Jesus entitled Windows into God's Kingdom because there are, after all, 47 parables and surely over these Sundays, you know, we're not going to have any repeats. There's enough material to go around. So this morning we're going to begin with what I think is such a, a key parable, if not the key parable, describing the ministry of Jesus and how we are to look at ministry, our ministry today as Christians in our culture, especially given some of the, can I say crap, going on south of the border in the evangelical Christian community. Luke 8, verses 1 through 15 is our reading this morning. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he had said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. This is the word of the Lord. Well, congregation, from the first time we first hear the tale 
of the three little pigs and other such stories as children. We are conditioned to look for the moral in every story. Build your house out of bricks. Don't cry, wolf. Slow and steady wins the race. Don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Behind every successful man is a surprised woman. And so, many people hear Jesus' familiar parable of the sower and quickly conclude that the moral is obvious. Be good soil. But Jesus' parables are more than nice Sunday school lessons with a moral to take home and apply to your daily life. Jesus speaks parables to make us think, to give us a new perspective, his perspective on life. Jesus' stories are designed to unsettle you, to challenge you, to even offend your understanding of the way things should be. In fact, here is a good rule of thumb to use for reading Jesus' parables. If you interpret it in such a way that there is nothing surprising or even shocking about it, you need to go back and read it again. If you read this parable, as many people do, as a call to be good soil, well, there's really nothing surprising or shocking about it. We read this parable and we worry about what kind of ground we are on with God. How many birds are in my field? How many rocks? How many thorns? We worry about how to turn ourselves into a well-seeded, fertilized field for the sowing of God's word. We hear the parable as a challenge to improve our lives so that if this parable were told about us, it would have a happy ending with the seed falling on rich, fertile soil. Only problem is that nowhere in this parable does Jesus say we ought to be good soil. In reality, this parable is about two things that eventually got Jesus killed. That may be hard to believe at first. The parable seems so pastoral, so non-confrontational, so innocuous. Jesus, as is perfectly obvious, is speaking about his own ministry. Jesus is the sower. The seed he is sowing, as he explains to his disciples, is the word of God, the word about the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom. Luke writes this, after Jesus, or rather after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus, the great sower, is sowing the seed of this good news in the soil of the world. And the soils are the human hearts to whom Jesus is speaking this good news, just as he is speaking to you and to me in this story right now. Some are responding. Some are not. So the parable is about Jesus and his ministry in the world. All pretty straightforward, right? Where is the surprise? Where is the offense in this? Look a little closer, however, 
And we will see that this seemingly straightforward story raises all kinds of questions, which is how we're going to approach the parable this morning, by asking four questions, which eventually come with some surprising, even offensive answers. So here's question one. Who or what is the subject of the parable? Is it the parable of the sower, the seeds, or the soils? You could make an argument, I suppose, for all three, since you need each element for the parable to make sense. But the focus, beyond doubt, is on the sower. Jesus makes that so clear by the way the story begins. A farmer went out to sow his seed. You put the focus anywhere else, and you miss the surprise and the offense of the story. But there's no obvious surprise or offense yet. So question two. What does the sower, Jesus, expect his seed to do wherever he scatters it? Well, that's easy. To produce mature fruit. Jesus combines the words mature and fruit at the end of verse 14, which talks about the seed that fell among thorns as not maturing. Now, the word mature comes from the Greek word telos, which means the inherent destiny of a thing. The telos of a sunflower seed is a sunflower. The telos of a grain of wheat is wheat. The telos of an acorn is an oak tree. Speaking of you and myself, I think of the person who said that the two most important days in his life were the day he was born and the day he figured out why. That is, what is my telos? Well, that too is not difficult to answer. The seed Jesus sows is the seed of the kingdom of God, and the telos of that seed is kingdom of God living. A life of right relationships with God and right relationships with others. The kind of living Jesus described in his famous Sermon on the Mount. It is a life of producing kingdom fruit, a life where the life of Jesus and the life of his spirit grows in us more and more. It is the fruit of the Spirit, which, writes Paul to Christians in Galatia, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And by the time Jesus tells this parable, Jesus is seeing that sort of fruit emerge and grow. You read back in Luke and you see how the tax collectors are drawn to him and change their ways. How prostitutes are drawn to him and find a different kind of life. How fishermen are drawn to him and become his disciples. And then there are the women who are following Jesus. Luke mentions three of them by name. Three women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women had heard the good news of the kingdom of God. And they were healed by it. And they do the unthinkable in that day and age. 
They leave the well-defined roles and duties that women had in home and family and society. And not caring a whit for what people thought of them, they chose to accompany Jesus and his disciples on the road, looking after their needs and doing so out of their own pockets. Imagine, these women represent what Jesus the sower expects to happen when his seed is sown in the soil of the world. Given who Jesus is, given the power of his word, he simply speaks and things happen. He rightly expects to see such fruit in any heart into which he speaks. As he later said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. All right. We get that too, right? Nothing surprising, nothing offensive, at least not obviously yet. So question three, why is this not happening more? This sort of fruit. Well, because, as Jesus the sower goes on to explain, there are obstacles to the seed growing and maturing in the soils. Each of us has met people. Maybe all it took was to look in a mirror that fit the soil conditions Jesus describes, in whose hearts can be found one or more of the following obstacles. There is the obstacle of hardness of heart. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The world, you see, is not a neutral place. Jesus tells us there is real, personal, diabolical opposition to him and the kingdom. All you got to do is look around in our world today to know that. There is the evil one, Satan, who does everything in his power to prevent the kingdom from breaking into our lives and transforming the world because the good news of Jesus means the end of his kingdom. He does whatever it takes to make sure that bitter hearts stay bitter. Resentful hearts stay resentful. Disappointed hearts stay disappointed. Hateful hearts stay hateful. Whenever we hear the good news of the kingdom but do not embrace it because of the hard, stubborn places in our hearts, the evil one steals the good news from us. But if we open up to Jesus' word even a little, the evil one has no room to work anymore. And he cannot take it away. There is the obstacle of shallowness. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Jesus is telling us that when we walk on the news of the kingdom, we are going to find ourselves in trouble. That's when the trouble starts. And we'll be tempted to back out from all-out kingdom living. 
Yes, there's a lot of blessing in receiving the goodness of the kingdom of God as well. Forgiveness, peace, healing, freedom, joy, eternal life. But also trouble. How could it be otherwise if God's kingdom is near? The good news of Jesus always messes with idols. The gospel undermines every way of life built on idols. Therefore, it almost always brings some sort of testing for those who seek to live out the truth that only God is God and who seek his kingdom first and above all else. We need to remember and realize this so we won't be so quick to back off when trouble comes and give up and things get hot. Then there is the obstacle of clutter. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, by riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Who of you does not know this heart condition? Cluttered hearts are one of the reasons why the first world, in spite of all the preaching that has happened since Christian Europeans first settled here less than three centuries ago, the first world has become the biggest mission field for third world missionaries. We hear the word, but all around us are worries, riches, pleasures that distract us. And because we eat and drink and we breathe, the age and culture we live in, we get caught up in its worries and riches and pleasures all of which become idols, all of which create a constant state of anxiety where we are always worrying about what we shall eat or drink or wear, and it chokes out the fruit of the kingdom. Any age or life built on idols will be characterized by constant worry because deep down, every human heart implicitly knows that man-made idols are insecure and they cannot last. Then finally, there is the good soil. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. In fact, up to 100 times the expected harvest. It appears that the devil wins in soil one. That fear of trouble wins out in soil two. That worries and riches and pleasures of life win out in soil three. I say appears because given who the sower is, given the life-transforming power of the seed, it is hard to believe that any human heart can finally resist him and his word. The good news is that the last word belongs to the sower and to his seed, the word of God. Because look at all the hardened hearts he has won, all the shallow hearts he has deepened, all the cluttered hearts he has overcome right here in this sanctuary this morning. And still, nothing too surprising or offensive here. 
other than that we are reminded of the power and presence of idols in our lives. And we may not like being reminded that we are still prone to wander and worship them. So question four, and here we get to the heart of the matter. What is it about this parable that is so offensive that as we said in the beginning, it finally got Jesus killed? Two things. What it says about how the kingdom of God comes and what it says about whom God loves. First, what it says about how God's kingdom comes. We hear in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel that John the baptizer, who had introduced Jesus to the world as God's long-promised Messiah, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John has been imprisoned. And while there, John becomes disappointed and disillusioned with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was not acting the way John had expected him to act. Jesus was not bringing in the kingdom of God the way John thought a kingdom ought to be brought in. As John understood it, as all God's people expected it, the Messiah was supposed to change things. He was supposed to burn up all the human trash and deadwood of the world. He was supposed to come with a sharp axe and a gleaming pitchfork and separate the good guys from the bad guys once and for all. He was supposed to clean up the world so that people like Herod were no longer in power and people like John were no longer in prison. As John had preached it, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire except that Jesus has utterly failed to meet John's expectations. Oh, the early reports of his ministries were promising. Healings, exorcisms, signs, wonders. That was good. It would get people's attention for the big announcement. It would give Jesus the authority he needed when he finally declared God's judgment. Only the big announcement never came. While John awaited his execution in prison, Jesus spent most of his time with spiritual weaklings and moral misfits, and he did absolutely nothing to chop up the rotten wood and clear out the rubble John had singled out for fiery destruction. How was that going to help anybody know right from wrong? All in all, there was far too much mercy and grace and healing, not near enough condemnation and hell to pay. It was more than John could stand, and so one day he sent out messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for somebody else? Get with it. You see what's happening? John and Jesus spoke about the same kingdom of God, but while John spoke of the Messiah coming as a reaper, Jesus identifies himself as a sower. But there's nothing spectacular about the work of a sower, is there? He sows the seed, sits back, waits patiently. He knows that much seed will go to waste. There are birds and rocks and thorns after all. 
but he also knows that there is going to be a good crop at the last. The kingdom of God comes. God gains back his world, says Jesus. Not by sending fire from heaven. Not by sending a reaper, a warrior, a terminator, a John Wayne. But by sending a sower, sowing the seed of the good news of the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom. As Jesus put it in his response to John's messengers, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is everyone who does not fall away because of me. Blessed, that is, is everyone who takes no offense at me, who doesn't fall away because I have come as a sower rather than a reaper. Blessed, that is, is everybody who understands that even though everything seems to remain as it always still is today and as it always has been, that even though ever since the first coming of Jesus, nations still fight nations, violent crime continues on our streets, those with money and power still trample all over those without and everywhere in our society and our world, busy people in all the busy places work and eat and play and rest without ever acknowledging Acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, blessed is he who understands that it is love that causes God to put up with evil for a while, to be patient and simply continue sowing the seed of his word, even through us and even through the church. The bottom line is that if Jesus coming as a sower offends us, and it offends a lot of Christians today, a lot of evangelical Christians for whom the end all and be all these days is political power. Just read the book Jesus and John Wayne by Calvin University Professor Kristen Dumez, which I think ought to be required reading for everyone who claims to be an evangelical Christian. The bottom line is that if Jesus coming as a sower offends us, it is because the heart of God offends us. A heart, as Jesus' answer to John reveals, that is full of grace and mercy and goodness and patience. A heart full of extravagant love. Now, maybe it's hard for you to imagine anybody being offended by sick people being healed, loveless people being loved, helpless people being empowered, the poor receiving good news. But then, you need to look no further than John the baptizer. You need to look no further than the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were so offended by Jesus' goodness and love, they finally nailed him to a cross. And how often don't you and I still wonder, like John, we hope Jesus would make our lives easy. Instead, he calls us to live more deeply. We thought he'd ease our suffering. Instead, we discover him next to us in our pain. We thought he'd put us on top. Instead, he tells us to identify with those on the bottom. We thought he'd make us strong. 
Instead, he calls us to learn strength through weakness. We thought he'd destroy our enemies. Instead, he asks us to love them. We thought he'd make us rulers. Instead, he invites us to be servants. We expected him to announce his presence in spectacular ways. But the signs of his kingdom come through ordinary hidden acts of love and self-sacrifice, like bringing groceries, canned goods to the food bank, volunteering at the gleaners. You know the kind of things I mean. We thought he'd come back soon and take us home, but he waits and sends us to reach the nations first with the goodness of his grace. He's not quite what we expected, nor is he quite what we would always prefer. But blessed is everyone, having tasted his grace, who takes no offense at him, and in his name continues his ministry to the blind, the lame, the sick, the deaf, the poor, those who mourn, those who are dead in sin, by sowing the seed of his word. And the power of that word is not the power of this world, but the power of love. Then, on top of everything, look what this parable says about whom God loves. The kingdom of God comes as a farmer who went out to sow his seed. And where does the sower sow his seed? Everywhere. What kind of a crazy farmer is that? Doesn't he know better than to scatter seed in hard and, and rocky and thorny soil? You and I would never do it that way. Why, if we were in charge, we would come up with a more efficient, more productive operation that did not waste seeds on birds and rocks and thorns, but concentrated only on the good soil and what we could make that soil do. But the parable of the sower tells us that Jesus, that the God of the kingdom, is way less concerned with productivity and way more concerned with abundance. Think again of the words with which Luke 8 begins. After this. After this. After what? After a prostitute, as Luke describes in the story leading up to this parable, crashes a dinner party to which Jesus had been invited by the local religious leaders, the Pharisees. After she washed Jesus' feet with her hair, with her tears, and then dried them with her hair. After she was forgiven, after she was blessed by Jesus, she was the sort of soil along with all sorts of sinners that the Pharisees had written off long ago. But not God. God never writes anybody off. Jesus is the sower who does not obsess about the condition of the fields, who is not stingy with the seed of his word, but scatters it everywhere on good soil and bad, who is not cautious or judgmental or even very practical, but who is simply willing to keep reaching into his seed bag as long as it takes to cover the whole creation with the fruit-producing seed of his truth. And yet, it is so easy for you and I to be offended right along with the Pharisees rather than be constantly amazed at the extravagance of grace that the sower scatters far and wide. We so easily shift the focus of this parable to ourselves. What kind of soil am I? 
What kind of soul do I need to become so that I'll be right with God? And after we have figured out and clarified what we think the right soil is supposed to look like, we look around to see what kind of soil other people are and what we think they need to be and what they need to do to merit the honor of being good soil. We move from being amazed at the extravagant extravagant grace of God to a place where we try to justify ourselves and then move on to judging others. And by the end of the story, we're sizing everybody up. But does the sower size up the soil? No. Does Jesus expect us to make our own selves worthy? No. Does Jesus want us to judge others? No. Why should we care if the sower throws his seed everywhere? But the religious leaders of Jesus' day did care so much they killed him for it. And all too often you and I care too. How could God include all sorts of undeserving people in his kingdom, such as the criminal on the cross beside Jesus, such as the killer of Christians and a persecutor of the church like the Apostle Paul, such as any number of celebrities and criminals whose conversion stories, yeah, right, we regularly hear about. Never mind some people whom I know personally. It was an unexpected convert to Christianity, perhaps the most famous father of the early church, St. Augustine, who said this, There is no saint without a past, no sinner without a future. How easily we forget that God's grace is extravagant enough to cover the field of the whole world and that before him, every one of us is undeserving. God spreads his love with reckless abandon in hearts that are at once all four different types of soil. He throws seeds at the disciples who show over and over that they have hard hearts, stiff necks, and extremely dim minds. He scatters the seed of the good news with wild extravagance And even when it's clear that his disciples just don't get it, when they turn him over to the authorities and they abandon him in his hour of need and they all deny ever knowing him and run away, Jesus continues to pour out his love on them by inviting them back into the fold after the resurrection. God is no less reckless in his love for you and for me. We who continue in the proud, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and dim-minded tradition of the disciples, we who all too often neglect to build the kingdom and instead focus on building ourselves, we who show again and again why we need forgiveness and forget again and again to give it. The good and offensive news of the kingdom is this. God continues to throw seed at us, continues to pour out his love upon us, still invites us, no matter the condition of our hearts, to abide in Jesus as branches in a vine, to open ourselves to him and his word, and so receive his life and bear fruit because of his spirit living in us. And so, in the end, you see, this is not a story about us. 
It is a story about the sower. It is not about our successes, our failures. It's not about birds and rocks and thorns. It is about the extravagance of a sower who is not at all phased by such concerns. It is about a sower, a savior, Jesus, who, in the words of one writer, flings seed everywhere, wishes it with holy abandon, who feeds the birds, whistles at the rocks, picks his way through the thorns, shouts hallelujah at the good soil, and just keeps on sowing, confident that there is enough seed to go around, that there is plenty, and that when the harvest comes at last, it will fill every barn in the neighborhood to the rafters. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came as a sower rather than a reaper. Thank you for the extravagant grace we have experienced in our own lives. So may we as Christians and as a church, armed with such grace, continue to sow the seed of your word everywhere. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.